Hello and welcome to the Mile End Institute podcast coming to you from Queen Mary University of London. I'm Dr Lindsay Jenkins, Deputy Director at the MEI. And today we're going to be discussing Richard King's book, Brittle with Relics, A History of Wales 1962 to 1997. And I'm delighted to welcome Richard to the podcast. He's a writer whose works include How Soon Is Now, Original Rockers and The Lark Ascending. And his latest work is a landmark history of the people of Wales during a period of great national change. He uses interviews with activists and campaigners from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives to trace the interweaving stories of deindustrialization and nationalism from 1962 up until the vote for partial devolution in 1997. And I'm also delighted to welcome Michaela Paynes, who's a researcher at the University of Cardiff, investigating emotion, belonging and political identities, working class women's activism in South Wales and South West England from 1928 to 1969. She's examining the experience of class, politics and citizenship with a particular focus on identity, memory and emotion. So welcome to you both and thank you very much for joining me. Borita, thanks. Lovely to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Richard, can I start by asking you, one of the things that's really striking about this book is the um, approach that you've decided to take with the extent of the interviews that you've done with such an enormous cast of characters um, from kind of leading political figures over the past um, over recent decades to grassroots activists and campaigners um, and people who've been involved in Welsh politics and Welsh culture and Welsh life and all different levels but the, the the kind of decision that you've taken is to let these people speak for themselves with very little um, intervention or editorializing from you um, and that you're kind of letting them tell their own stories. I wonder if you could tell us about the process of doing these um, this huge amount of interviews and then the decision that you've taken to to, to approach the work in this way. Sure. Well, um, in Wales, we we have this idea of a pobl werin, uh, a folk people. Um, this is an idea popularised by the the the, um, the chapel in the late 19th, early 20th century in particular, when it um, allowed people a sense of identity outside of the workplace. So there was the great drive for um, self-improvement through education, through participation in cultural events, uh, even participation in things like holidays that the chapel provided. And I suppose it's um, a Welsh version of of the idea of a classless society, uh, where there's there are no real hierarchies, just people um, living and working together in a in a sense of communal self-improvement. So I wanted the voices in the book to sort of echo that in a way. So someone like Neil Kinnock or Rowan Williams, people who had obviously been in positions of hierarchy, would be on the same page as people who would be far less familiar to the reader. So everyone stands together as one on the page. Um, In terms of the decision to let the voices speak for themselves without much editorialising, I felt that much of this history, particularly the history of the struggle for the survival and revival of Cymraeg, the Welsh language, was barely known within Wales outside of Welsh-speaking circumstances, let alone outside of Wales. And um, I also felt that um, we've all come become quite 
accustomed to certain narratives placed around things like deindustrialization and um, the winter of discontent and the need for monetarism. And I, I really wanted people just to feel they had a platform on which to speak freely. Now, with that, there are there are one or two issues. There are two or three people said things that historically a tiny bit inaccurate but I made the decision to just go with that because I thought if if I'm letting people speak then what they say is is what's going to go on the page. This decision was taken by me quite early on when I interviewed several people who were going in going to be included in the chapter on the miners strike which is the longest chapter in the book deliberately so because I want the reader to have a sense of the sort of endurance those communities experienced and several of the people I spoke to not all of whom were familiar to one another but all had been literally on the front line on the picket line during the strike voiced concern that they felt that their experience of the 84-85 miners strike was being rewritten by uh, I'm sorry to say this in the context of this podcast by by academics and um I thought well if if people are saying that then I I'm going to be on their side um and you know hang the consequences in terms of if they make the odd historical mistake or if it comes across as not so much one-sided but from from one perspective I just wanted people to be able to tell their stories and to tell them uh, in a chorus. And how did, when you were doing the um, interviewing yourself, presumably there was quite a lot of um, emotion and, um, you know, that you're dealing with important and, and transformative moments in people's lives. What was that experience like? And um, have you... What have you done with the full interviews? Sure. Well, that that's an excellent question. Um, I did a, a third of the interviews in person. Uh, if you want to ever drink really good quality tea, uh, cups of tea, interview lots of Welsh people in their houses. Um, it was very uh, affable experience on the whole. But then I did two thirds on Zoom uh, during the first wave of the pandemic. And in a way that worked really well because after a couple of months, people had sort of settled down into that sort of sense of attrition we were all experiencing at the time. And people, you know, could set aside an afternoon to talk in depth. Um, I don't want to dwell on the miners' strike in particular, but I have a miners' lamp on my desk that belonged to my grandfather, who who was a miner in a pit in um, the Ammon Valley. And I have it on my desk to sort of remind me that I don't really know the meaning of hard work um, <laughs> to sort of inspire me in, in many ways. And I was able to kind of hold that up on Zoom in conversation to people involved in the mining industry and the steel industry to kind of say, you know, this is, this is part of my background and it's something I feel strongly about. And certainly several times, I'd say probably two dozen times, as you mentioned, some of it's rather emotional. Uh, both myself and the interviewee were reduced to tears talking about these experiences. Um, I hope it was a cathartic experience for the interviewees, but definitely I felt people were 
not dealing with things they'd buried, but dealing with things that um, were synonymous with a sense of defeat. And, uh, you know, as we all go through life experiencing defeat at times, it's often painful, but the sense of the sort of, for the individual, but the sense of the sort of defeat of the community was something I felt very acutely. And I think when things got emotional in our conversations, it was a sense of grief for the power of those communities that was was the trigger for the sort of um, the sort of minor breakdowns we seem to have in these conversations. Michaela. Um, yes, so the, the the point you mentioned about um, you know some of the people you interviewed feeling like, like a sense that that the his, the history of the miners' strike in particular being rewritten by academics. It's um it's quite funny that you mentioned that. It's often a debate that I have with my my own dad, who was you know he was a miner um, during the strike, um, worked in Municipal, and whenever I talk to him about maybe academic works there's always some disagreement there um and i think that really highlights the importance um in your book and in in, in history in particular the importance of highlighting the subjective experience and i think something that was brought out really well in your in, in your book in particular with you know the range and variety of interviews was the debate on you know what defines being welsh and what constructs a welsh identity I think, you know, um, is quite often linked to something that's so closely tied with the past and, um, you know, language being a central theme of that. And I think sometimes it can create this sort of idea of a Welsh identity being quite exclusive. I was wondering if you might reflect on this or if you had any other thoughts. Yes, um, th that's an excellent point. I think, you know, I, I, I don't for a second want to engage in academic bashing particularly as I've been doing some work with Cardiff University myself recently but that entrenchment you refer to in terms of who who feels confident living the life their life within the language and those who feel alienated by it uh, runs through the question who gets to write about what what constitutes Welsh history and in the period I cover, I think certain people were quite happy to become gatekeepers of separate Welsh identities, uh, knowing that there were income streams that would support this from, from government, from arts council, from educational institutions. So I think that sense of um, people being disenfranchised from their own history stems in part from this argument over, well, who, who is really Welsh? And I think, you know, I was very wary of kind of making the argument that the Welsh Language Act and the road signs becoming bilingual put everything to bed in terms of how people felt about the language. But I was struck by the visceral antipathy towards the language that certain people within what we might call old labour in Wales, very, you know, union with a capital U labour, felt towards the language. And I felt that the people who'd kind of taken that side institutionally outside of politics were, were people who had um, almost promoted a sense of paranoia about Welsh-speaking Wales and what it constitutes within a, a, a national identity framework.
one of the things you do really effectively in the book is also to kind of put Welsh nationalism in a broader global context. So there's a sense that, you know, that some people are inspired by or linked to decolonizing movements across the world. There's a sense of um, community with other anti-imperial movements in particular, and, you know, a sense that England acts as the kind of the coloniser, the imperial power. And so there's a kind of surprising sense of um, of connection and identification with other smaller nations struggling for um, identity and independence. Yes, in the late 60s, the works of Gandhi and Martin Luther King were translated into Cymraeg for the first time, and that had a very strong influence on the nascent Welsh language movement, which was mainly under the aegis of the Welsh language society. Uh, a lot of the participants at the time were students and were were young and were people who weren't afraid to, and particularly given the justice system then was fairly lenient, uh, were people who were unafraid to take direct action, passive direct action uh, for their cause. And certainly people in the book say they felt a sense of affinity with with international struggles. Um, at that stage in the history, I think within Anglophone Wales, people thought this was just naive student politics to equate promote the promotion of Cymraeg with apartheid or with the Vietnam War. Um, later on, in, in, during the 1980s, when things like the nuclear threat were being interrogated by people from Wales or based in Wales with the advent of the Women for Life on Earth march that eventually turned into the Greenham Common Women's Peace Camp, I think the sense of co-consciousness across the survival of the language, Greenham Common and then again the miners' strike, I think that's undeniable, that sense of internationalism and an international struggle. And I think the reason it's undeniable because it was it was viscerally felt in communities. But another point to make on that is, you know, there were there were campaigns to try and stop the South African rugby team from touring in Wales. And people involved in that campaign, anti-racist campaign, has said that, you know, those former industrial or changing industrial communities, places where Paul Robeson had sung famously, uh, had an incredible sense of solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement. And they would always make very large donations. But the one thing they really struggled with was the idea that the rugby should have been cancelled. So I think the extent to which that co-consciousness was felt in everyday life, although I said, you know, it was there viscerally in things like the strike and in um, many of the actions taken by the language movement, the idea that it went beyond that, um, I think it's easy, is easily overstated. One of the things you also kind of bring out and that you've sort of alluded to there is the kind of variety of um, of shades of opinion and priorities within um, within Welsh nationalism. And one of the chapters in particular that's really fascinating is the way that some um, forms of nationalism 
were almost kind of bordering on fascism in the extent to which they were exclusive and and kind of narrow. And then on the other side, you know, you had this really um, progressive, forward-thinking um, identification and concern with the future rather than the past. And um, a, a large number of people who are kind of coming together around um, issues of not just social justice, but also environmental activism. And so you get this kind of enormous spectrum of what Welsh nationalism is. Yes, I think at the back of my mind, I had Raymond Williams' idea of the active citizen, um, you know, active citizenship, people participating in democracy through their everyday lives. And it's not hard to find many examples of that through the period. One of the things that sort of inspired the book, really, was watching two successive British prime ministers say on the steps of Number 10 Downing Street, I love my country. Uh, David Cameron said it with his characteristic insouciance, uh, having resigned after the Brexit vote in 2016. And then Theresa May said it, um, I think, more convincingly in floods of tears when she resigned. And I couldn't remember in my lifetime seeing a British prime minister use nationalism to to such an extent, such an overt extent as saying that they love their country. And I thought, well, that's... Yeah, and, and I think in both cases it predicted where we are now in terms of a, an English form of nationalism. But I thought that, not allowed, but that, that in a way opened up the idea of, well, what, what do we mean by nationalism? Because people in Wales who'd fought for Cymraeg, particularly within Wales, were dismissed as Nats, as nationalists. And it was always considered a term of abuse and as I said earlier, you know, almost a sort of naive, delusional idea that Wales could achieve nationalism. But nationalism may be, if you like, with a lowercase n, the idea that people were members of communities that were in crisis through the period I cover, then is nationalism really in that context a way of trying to make your struggle have a wider, more understandable meaning and sense of purpose beyond your own day-to-day struggle. And initially, the well, you know, Welsh nationalism really got going, uh, you know, the Saunders-Lewis version in the 1950s. That is so close to the Second World War that I think people did equate nationalism then with, with fascism. And Rowan Williams talks about mentioning to his father that he might vote Plaid Cymru, and his father said to him, I fought a war against nationalism. But I think once you get to the founding of Cymdaithiais Iraith Cymraeg and the very passive, play, you know, playful forms of, of Welsh resistance then, that form of nationalism, I think, by no means exclusively, but I think is a much more softer... I, the word I like to use is is self-confidence. It's just a sort of exercise in, in trying to establish a form of Welsh confidence rather than Welsh nationalism. The way that's represented in the parties in Wales, um, particularly, you know, early on looking at Labour's almost reluctancy to, um, you know, incorporate or promote um, 
ideas of Welsh difference and language and culture. And it's something I found in my own research in Labour women's groups at the at the beginning of the century, where when you compare when you compare the women's um, Labour women's sections with the women's cooperative guilds, there was a real uh, reluctancy in the Labour sections to incorporate this idea of Welshness, um, whereas the women's cooperative guilds, certainly in Swansea, were looking at um, giving lectures and talks in the Welsh language and having um, you know organisers who could speak in Welsh. Um, so I found that quite interesting, especially Labour's reluctancy. And I think there was a point um, later in the book looking at the Communist Party and how they seemed so much more nationalist and pro-devolution than Labour and were even printing, you know, bilingual publications. That sense of Labour being, a, a, you know, a pretty unpleasant boys club at time with, with various powerful council leaders filling up smoky rooms, as the cliche goes, was, you know, that really pertained in Wales in the 70s and the 60s, particularly when um, Wales was economically very vibrant in the late 60s. Those, those, those Labour male archetypes were incredibly powerful. And a place like Blaenau Festiniog is really interesting in all this because it was Labour right up until David Ellis Thomas won the seat and the either very late 70s or early 80s, I think the early 80s. Um, it was always run by Labour and all their minutes and their constitution and their legal documents were written in Cymraeg and all their meetings were held in Cymraeg. So that's a Labour Party operating exclusively in the Welsh language. And the Communist Party, which was always strong in the valleys, came from, I'd say, almost an holistic attitude to Welsh identity that, you know, was very much forged in the Fed, then the NUM, and that tradition of self-improvement through education and autodidacism. And it seems that where, where that sort of sense of self improvement and self-identification with being Welsh, wherever you locate that, whether it's in women's groups, as you mentioned, Michaela, or in other political parties, it's always very benign, if not positive, towards the language. It really was the sort of, uh, I don't want to be too ad hominem, but it was the, the Neil Kinnock version of Wales, and that's a Labour Wales identity that really was viscerally um, keen to, to reject Cymraeg. And that also, you know, was embodied in George Thomas, who was, who was a Labour politician who supervised the ceremony for the investiture of Prince Charles in 1969, and also um, was the only person to travel with Prince Charles in his carriage. And that marrying of labour with the monarchy really wouldn't accommodate the language and similarly I, th I think it's very interesting Michaela I don't know if you're old enough to remember this but for a long period as you cross the Severn Bridge into Wales into South Wales the first building you saw was an army apprentice college and in Caldicott and I think the symbolism of that with the monarchy and the military really cemented this idea of Wales being part of the Union. And that really was 
a form of Welshness that Labour really felt it was the overseer of. We've already sort of alluded to the the central role of um, Cymraeg within Welsh identity, but I wonder if you could reflect a little bit more. I was really struck by one of your interviewees um, who says kind of late on in the book, you don't have to speak it for it to be your language. And I think you do get that sense through the book of um, a tr- a, the place of the language transitioning in the nation from a point where, as you were saying before, you know, there's a kind of sense of it being um, one of your other interviewees describes it as kind of intimidating and exclusionary. Um, but then it kind of assumes a more inclusive role. Yes, it's the actor Rhys Evans who says that in the book, that um, he says the band, the super furry animals made you feel, even if you couldn't speak Welsh, it was your language. Um, it's interesting you bring that up, Lindsay, because having having um, asserted at the start of the programme that um, there's not much editorialism, editorialising on my behalf, that was really kind of the argument I was trying to make, that whether or not you speak Welsh, um, it belongs to all of us. It belongs to anyone. You know, Gwen Alf Williams, the, the wonderful historian of Wales, said, if you feel Welsh, you are Welsh. And he was bilingual from the valleys, top of the valleys, near Herwine. And I think it's, it's best seen as a, an anomaly, this antipathy towards the language. And prior to the 19, you know, it's, it's falling off from about the 1930s towards the 1960s. It wasn't as so divisive an issue, and it's no longer one now, largely due to the fact that it's taught in all Welsh schools. But I think prior to that, there was just a sort of sense of an accord with the language during the end of the 1980s when people realised that whether you spoke in large parts of Wales, in the majority of Wales, whether you spoke the language or not, there was a very good chance that you were living somewhere that was experiencing hardship. And actually, if Wales was going to survive with any sort of sense of itself, there were more important challenges than arguing over the language. And I think one of the things that really helped kind of neutralise it in a way was the Welsh language sort of punk movement of the 1980s which whose raison d'etre in a way was to interrogate the language and the use of the language bands like Dat Pluggy would semi-reluctantly play the Eisteddfod and make up songs on the stage criticising or satirising the Eisteddfod so there was a break within Cymraeg culture with that rather traditional view of the bardic poem and the harp recitals and the choirs, much as many people you know, still understandably have huge attachment to those things. But it was once the lang- once I think people saw that the language was being renewed by people who wanted to kind of move on from that fixed idea of what the language was for, I think that was a way in for many people to understand the language. So I, I, you know, I'm not making the case that John Peel sessions somehow <laughs> led to a wider acceptance of 
of Kamraig, but you know there is there is something in that. And just to kind of um, follow up on this point about if you feel Welsh, you are Welsh. I wonder if you could ask you about um, race and ethnicity. Um, and maybe this kind of relates to what you were saying before about self-confidence, because there's uh, you have an interview or you, you interview Charlotte Williams, who comes up several times and um, and she talks about what it is to be black and Welsh and how Welshness has to be kind of made and um, and remade in order to accommodate um, immigration and um, and people of of different backgrounds. Yes, um, I went to school for the first half of my childhood in Newport, and there was probably twenty-five percent people of colour in my classes. Uh, my son goes to, who's eleven, goes to school in Mid Wales, and he's just finishing year six, and there's never been a person of colour in any of his classes uh, in rural Wales. So I think that you know proves Charlotte's point very well that we constantly have to examine what it means to be Welsh. I saw a very powerful example of this uh, watching Wales playing football for the World Cup qualifier against Austria a few weeks ago. I don't know if you came across it, but the politician and campaigner and uh, he's ordained as well, uh, as, and the folk singer David Ewan sang a rebel song, a mother or deed that he he wrote in 1983 that starts with, uh, the, I think I'm right in saying this, the Mortimers coming into Wales and, and building the castles, but was written as a, as a protest against Thatcherism in 1983. And uh, the chorus goes, we're still here, we're still here. After all we've been through, we've, we're still here. And um, during him singing it, a cameraman picked out a young woman, um, a person of colour, she was wearing the bucket hat that Welsh supporters wear, and she had a Cymdaithiais badge on her hat and a Yes Cymru, which is a, um, a, pro- a current protest movement for Welsh self-determination and independence, badge on her hat as well. And she was singing along to every word. So not only was this rebel song being sung in Welsh in Cymraeg at a sporting event in Cardiff, which has not always been a place where the language has been a place synonymous with the use of Cymraeg. But it was being sung by a young person of colour who was clearly very invested in the idea of a more confident, more assertive sense of Welshness. And I think also the fact that in 2016, when Wales had a very successful Euro campaign in the football, the captain, Ashley Williams, was a person of colour. And this... I think there is a sense, particularly among younger people, that you know, a multicultural Wales and a bilingual Wales is is a Wales that you know is the one we'd all like to live in because it just feels vital and it feels like a, a very progressive and exciting society to be part of that. And I think that's really borne out in the various football supporter networks in Wales, which are some of the you know. In, in terms of their attitude towards pricing, towards inclusion, is one of the most progressive organisations in Wales and, and probably far ahead of the current legislation promoted by the Senate. Michaela. 
I think it's mostly drawing on those ideas of, you know, belonging and community. And I think this is where I linked, you know, um, I saw a lot of links with some of my own research, especially exploring, you know, the the earlier, the earlier half of the 20th century and um, looking at gender within that and um, the role of women in, you know, supporting communities and seeing that as an extent, almost an extension of the family and those ideas of Welsh hospitality. So the interviews really give a sense of how important women's role was in maintaining a sense of solidarity and strength. Um, particularly in, you know, 84, 85, Greenham, and you can see links um, with those ideas of women's organisation through donations, food, emotional support, international, um, you know, peace campaigns, links with the earlier century, um, earlier in the century, particularly with, you know, 1926 distress relief, or, you know, international peace campaigns throughout the 20s and the 30s. Um, so with that links of my own research was looking at how those interviews brought out the themes of emotion and belonging and how, you know, you can see how being involved in supporting the community through periods of hardship can develop a sense of confidence, particularly in the friendships and emotional bonds that are formed with other women's with other women involved. And I think that's brought out quite well with um, Sean James, where she discusses her involvement, you know, in local support during 84 and 85 and how it, this was a liberating opportunity for her. And it was new and exciting. And I think she's a really good example because she really demonstrates how the sense of belonging and confidence was fostered within community activism and how that can politicise or at least strengthen political um, involvement. So, um, yeah, I think that just really demonstrates, you know, as I said earlier, the importance of exploring the subjective experience and oral history and adding that emotional layer. And Michaela, just just to pick up a point of that you mentioned about Sean, it was Sean also who says, uh, proving your point about that sort of almost a folk memory of, of, of a welcome and of sustenance saying that, during 84, 85, it was agreed in some of those minor support networks, which were 80%, if not more, run by women, that there were memories in the valleys of people being means tested in the Great Depression and how that wasn't going to happen this time in 84, 85, because there were elderly people who still felt the indignity of, of soup kitchens. And, you know, there's there would have been no constitutional organization that sort of passed any kind of um, legislation for that it wouldn't have been passed at a sort of union meeting it was it was the people in the kitchens in the households with memories who decided that for themselves and in most cases they you know nearly all cases they were women thank you ever so much for your um time and your really thoughtful reflections it's such an interesting book um Britta with relics by richard king is available now and um, i'd like to thank both richard and michaela for participating and thanks to everyone for listening please do subscribe to the podcast for future episodes you can also find the mile end institute on social media and if you sign up to the mailing list on our website you'll always hear first about our future events <laughs>